I knew that at some point I was going to need to deal with all the events that had happened leading up to there. I knew that I would go from that fast-paced life to a much slower-paced life. Welcome to the podcast where we track down Australian war veterans, have a chat with them and hear their stories. I'm Alex Lloyd and this is Life on the Line. They were building positions in there if for a fight. If to us, by the time anyone got to us, I think it was chaos. the weather was so bad, there would be nobody left. And the next thing I hear was alarms screaming. The very, very the soldiers didn't want to go into the ambushes, so they'd send the kids in first. So he was sent in first into an ambush and he got shot in the stomach. It was very hard for me, very hard for my family. And the pain was proud of the crew, proud of what I've achieved and what I'm doing. The volunteer for service was in effect to put your life on the line. This is the second part of Sharon Mascaldea's conversation with Dr. Dan Pronk, a Special Forces doctor with the SAS and 2nd Commando Regiment. Make sure you've already heard Volume 1, then come back and listen to this episode. Dr. Dan Pronk saw action in over 100 combat missions with Special Forces. His conversation with Sharon picks up after his tours of Afghanistan, where the reality of combat was starting to take hold. You're listening to Life on the Line. I'm Sharon Maskeldare. In this episode, we return to the story of Dr. Dan Pronk, a Special Forces doctor who had several tours of Afghanistan and East Timor before he turned to civilian medicine several years ago. And for today's second half of his interview, we've come to the Torrens Parade Ground in central Adelaide, which is a place of contemplation, commemoration and reflection. So, Dan, Welcome again to Life on the Line. Thank you kindly, Sharon, for having me back. So tell us what happened when you finished that final tour in Afghanistan. What was in store for you next? I finished my final tour of Afghanistan and come home to Australia around the same time that my wife was heavily pregnant with our third son. And after his birth, I got home about a week prior and went on leave and, and we had our third son. And that was the point at which we decided as a, as a family that it was time for me to discharge from the particularly the special operations environment, but the army as a whole, we decided that that was enough. Three kids and, and my wife, God bless her, had uh, raised the two youngest almost as a single parent for the previous five years and so when the third one came along after my fourth tour in pretty quick succession we decided that I'd get out so I made that plan for the end of that year so I'd had another six months at the unit and we started to look towards transition and an interstate move back to my wife's uh, hometown. So tell us a bit about where you were at that time in terms of your physical health, your mental health given what you'd been through, because in the first part of your interview, you talked about some of the horrendous circumstances you'd had to encounter as a doctor and as a member of the Special Forces. Yeah, look, at at that stage, I guess with hindsight, and I I suppose I didn't appreciate it fully at the time because I was still within that bubble, if you like, and also in that fast-paced life that I actually found quite protective against any of the psychological sort of sequelae of the the cumulative trauma of the years. But I did start to identify in that last six months at uh, SASR that the transition was going to be a challenge. I, I knew that at some point I was going to need to deal with all the events that had happened leading up to there. I knew that I would go from that fast-paced life to a much slower paced life. 
and I, I also knew that that I'd need to transition back into a civilian medical job and, and all of these things were going to be challenging. I, I could see it ahead of time. I'm not sure that I could completely appreciate it. I don't think anyone really can, but I, I did foresee it and I, I knew that I was headed for a little bit of a, a, a fall, if you like. I, I, I figured things would catch up with me and I'd, I'd need to re-engage in some form of meaningful civilian work that would then be able to, to move me forward in life. So you talk about heading for a fall. So can I ask, how far did you fall and how fast? Yeah, look, the back half of that year at the unit was quite fine. I I fell back into the the normal routine of the unit, which even when you weren't deployed was quite busy. Once again, I was in an environment where I was surrounded by friends and people who had experienced the, if not the same events that I had, but similar events. And so that was quite protective. There was meaningful work to be done, albeit not on operations. There was always something going on. And so it was quite busy and I was fine for the remainder of that year. And then I finished up at the unit and we we moved into state and set up at the next place. What I'd done, which I'm thankful for in hindsight, I'd realised that I was going to need a focus of some description. I'd ended up accumulating the best part of a year of leave that I couldn't take during my military service and so I was due to take that as the year when I first discharged and I knew that without a job as a focus I'd be quite directionless and I'd started to ask around a couple of other unit blokes who had left and as to what they'd done, how they'd made that transition and a number of them had gone on to do a a Master of Business Administration and so I thought that would be a great focus and with hindsight it was a great choice. I enrolled in one of those and was accepted into a program and so commenced that full-time as a a, uh, distance student, so online, but a full-time workload for the year when I first transitioned out of the army and so I got out Left Perth, moved into state, set up in a new place, went on leave and started doing my MBA, which was a a great focus, but still that transition from going from a really high stimulus, high paced environment surrounded by like minded people back into a civilian environment was to be honest a real struggle. It was a real struggle. And the, I it was at that point in the first six months to a year when I left the military that it was the first time I'd really experienced the what with hindsight was a degree of post traumatic stress. It was an opportunity. It was my first chance for I guess the the trauma that I'd accumulated over the five years prior to start to get processed. I guess in effect it caught up with me. Uh, I was able to run and run from it while I while I was occupied in in Perth. But then it, when it all stopped, I had a good chance to, to process it all, and that was where I, I really started to experience some of that what what, what we know as post traumatic stress and the the intrusive thoughts, the reliving things that and just that that I guess what needed to happen, the processing of those events of the years prior, and starting to try and rationalise that as best as I could in my mind. What's interesting about how you describe that experience is that clearly today there's a lot of discussion in the media and at a political level around transition and getting transition right for veterans. And it sounds for you that actually that experience of the intrusive thoughts and the memories of what you've been through were closely connected with that transition. And the fact that keeping yourself busy was a key factor in terms of your recovery and being able to move on. I mean, reflecting on that now, what do you think you learned about transition that perhaps is relevant to to other people who are transitioning out of the Australian Defence Force? For sure. I think the transition period and from any role, it doesn't need to be defense 
fence, but I mean, transitioning any job, moving into state, and anything is a is a big deal. It's a big change, and with hindsight, I, I feel that probably the biggest part of my challenge transitioning out of the army wasn't necessarily those that that post-traumatic symptomology. That was a component of it, but it was the loss of identity. I all of a sudden found myself. I I had spent the previous five years identifying myself as a special operations doctor, and that held meaning to me. I felt that I was contributing to something meaningful there and, and my self-worth was fundamentally rolled into that identity and then all of a sudden I'd, I'd popped out at the other end and completely lost that identity. I was back in a civilian world and I was incredibly lucky in the regard that I had a skill set that translated into the civilian world and I wasn't physically injured I, so I wasn't in pain. I, I hadn't uh, suffered significant injuries at all uh, during my service and I had a really stable home environment with a very understanding wife and kids and so I had a, a bunch of protective factors that allowed me to transition financially. The civilian medicine was far more lucrative than the, the, its military counterpart so that was protective there and it was still a struggle and I know a lot of and unfortunately a lot of my mates have struggled with that transition and then fallen into a, a uh, the post-traumatic stress disorder, the PTSD, so that that, that cyclical sort of negative spiral that, that can occur and I, I, I suspect that some of that is also associated with that loss of identity but also not having a skill set that allows them to transition into a civilian life and get employment that they feel is meaningful that allows them to then build a new sense of self-worth and a new identity as a, a civilian uh, so I think that the transition is tough for a lot of reasons no matter if you've sustained trauma and uh, having any degree of post-traumatic stress but it's it's tough because you lose that identity and I think that's probably the bigger component for me anyway. So reflecting back and and particularly for people listening to this podcast who do not have experience of, of being or, or really understanding how the Australian Defence Force works, how would you describe those differing identities that you then discovered? The identity that you'd had as a Special Forces doctor, then moving on from that being a doctor in the civilian world and developing a new identity. What was the difference between the two? Look, I think with the, the military and particularly the special operations community, you lose sight of the fact that you're working in an environment that has had a selection process that has led to the cohort. And so you end up in that environment and the group that you're within has been selected, represents a subset of society that's been screened and, and as a generalisation is is often uh, has got attributes that are more appealing to a defence environment. So I, I, I I don't want to use the term high functioning, but it's more specific to a defence environment. And then from there, it's further distilled into special operations. And that then becomes your norm and you recalibrate to that. That's the norm for you. You get used to that. And then popping back out into a civilian environment, you realise you're back in that overall bell curve and you go back into an environment from a medical perspective. I guess I went from working with really focused, motivated soldiers who would suffer the most horrendous of injuries and then rehabilitate so well because they were so psychologically motivated to get back to a full function to deploy and do their job again. So it was, a, it was harder to hold them back and try and convince them that they are broken. I popped out and then my first civilian medical job was on a mine site doing pretty routine mine site medicals with a very different cohort of society that didn't have that same enthusiasm to rehabilitate and, and a lot of the work cover stuff. And, and, and it was just a tough environment to reintegrate back into and adjust my mindset from the one that was appropriate within special operations to the one that's appropriate within the work cover in the that sort of industry environment where you're then there trying to encourage people to make 
make small gains to get back to the minimum standard to come back to work rather than encouraging people to not go back to work too early because they are broken, shot, electrocuted, drowned, you know, the list goes on. So that it was quite a challenge and, and once again the bigger part of it was I, I didn't feel that my initial job for example was, was I didn't feel any self-worth, I didn't feel I was contributing anything particularly meaningful in that role, I was professionally unstimulated and it was a, a real struggle to be honest. Thinking back though, you were demonstrating obvious resilience. You were determined to make a go of your new life. You were determined to move on. How though did people around you perhaps react to your special forces background? Did you find that people were constantly in awe of you? Did you find that people welcomed you? Did people just keep asking you how many people you'd shot? I mean, what kinds of questions did did people ask you and, and how did they respond to you? It was a bit of a mixed bag, I think. And to be honest, for the most part, I tried not to broadcast that part of my life. And I found that most people didn't have any great interest. There were the people that did find out and had the ones that were interested in military. And there's a, a particular group that, of course, has, a, has a, an interest in special operations because it, it is shiny and, and what have you. And so there was those amongst the people that I met that, that found out my background and were very interested in my past and what I, what I had to say and do. But for the most part, I I didn't broadcast it at that stage the uh, so I, I kept it quiet and just kind of went about my way and just was it was another tough one where to a degree I wanted to hold on to that military past and because it was something I loved I wanted to stay engaged and, and I guess some of that was me trying to keep some of that self-identity which I, I held my self-worth was linked to during my service but then another part of me really felt the need to break away from that and not dwell on that and you, I guess you don't want to be that ex-special forces guy you don't you, you want to try and reinvent yourself as something new so I, I suppose in many ways it's like a relationship breakup it's it's sort of you when when you're out of a, a long-term relationship you're always looking back thinking how good it was and and you you run the risk of falling back into that relationship that might not have been healthy for you but the bigger part of you knows you need to make a cut and move forward and, and progress with your life and so it was, it was a lot like that in many ways so what did you become what was your new identity and how did you develop that new identity to fulfill yourself professionally in the civilian world I was lucky in, in a couple of regards. When I first got out of the army, I had the opportunity to start a small niche tactical medical training company. I'd established some relationships with some police tactical groups and a couple of other agencies who were interested in me running their tactical medical training programs. So I was able to engage in, in that from a business perspective and also get out and train these people who were, were very like-minded to the military special operations community. So that was a fantastic way to use some of my business skills that I was learning through my MBA but also a way to I guess hold on to a bit of that self-identity and self-worth that was involved with tactical medicine and stay engaged in that and then as that progressed over my years leaving defence I managed to broker a deal where I bought into a, a large company called TACMED Australia which was founded by a, a former commando medic so a special operations medic and, and there was another special operations medic who bought into that so the three of us currently co-owned TACMED and, and so that from a business perspective was fantastic because it was a not only a great focus and an opportunity to use my new skill set uh, from the Master of Business Administration, it also allowed me to be interacting regularly with these like-minded ex-special operations medics, but also to be starting to actually build something tangible and financially lucrative in the business environment. So that was, that was a great 
side project to be able to start to rebuild some self-worth in that realm whilst also getting some utility out of my ex-profession, the, the tactical medicine, which from another angle where anyone who's who's experienced it knows that there's a great bunch of skills there with the, the stuff that we learnt on the battlefield that now have a civilian application. So things like arterial tourniquets, some of the uh, evolutions of dressings, a thing called a hemostatic dressing and what have you, all the other lessons learned on the battlefield we're starting to see are applicable in a civilian first response environment. And so TACMED's got a massive focus to try and get these lessons learned across and try and get them out into the civilian community and particularly internationally they're starting to see the utility of all these lessons learned sadly in the the terrorist mass casualty incidents which are using the the same weaponry that we were seeing on the battlefields the improvised explosive devices the high velocity assault rifle wounds and what have you and so they're learning that lesson internationally that they need to look to the military community to empower their civilian first responders with these skills and Australia is starting to get a bit more receptive to those lessons as well which is fantastic so that's that's a a really validating and and um to have that previous experience and to be able to for it to still have some utility back in a civilian peacetime environment is is fantastic so that's been one aspect of of how i've been able to i guess kind of reinvent myself and and reach a point where i've feel professionally satisfied the other huge part of it was a, about a two years out of my full-time army service where i was i was just really treading water in in a fly-in fly-out job at a mine site I, a good friend of mine who was a ex-reserve doctor with SASR he was running a small hospital in regional Queensland and he gave me an opportunity to go up and be his uh, second in command up there so to help run the hospital up there and that for me was pivotal in in my I guess my reinventing myself as a civilian we pulled our kids out of school moved up there mid-year and and set up there and and it was it was hard work it was a, a small team of doctors there was six from memory six or seven and we were working 12, 13 hour shifts, six days on, four days off. So it was a great distraction. You know, I, I had no time to sit around and, and feel sorry for myself or for, I shouldn't say that, but, but it, it, it occupied my mind and really I noticed a, a really noticeable difference in the intrusive thoughts and I guess there wasn't the spare time to sit around and have them enter my mind. I was really getting back into the practice of medicine. I was working primarily out of the emergency department there and it was fast paced it was stimulating. It, it allowed me to not only pick up a medical skill set that I hadn't used for a long time, managing elderly, managing kids, dealing with things like heart attacks and, and what have you, strokes, as opposed to the trauma side that I had uh, more exposure to in the military context. But also it allowed me to start applying the managerial component of my MBA in a medical context. So it was a great uh, tipping the toe, toes in the water of, of medical management whilst having this what I found for the first time since I'd left the army was a professionally satisfying career and allowed me to feel that I could reinvent myself as a doctor working in the emergency department with a view to moving on in medical management. Because what strikes me as we sit here today is, I mean, you've got a business shirt on, you kind of look terribly kind of business-like as we're sitting here doing today's interview. So how would you describe yourself then today? Who is Dan Pronk now? And how does Dan Pronk now compare with Dan Pronk then? 
Yeah, it's a, an interesting observation and I, I sort of find myself thinking that same thing. How did it all get to this? And I, I often think if I went back five, ten years and, and or someone was to tell me in, in ten years' time you'd be wearing business attire and you'd be sitting at a desk all day doing medical management, I'd, I would have told them they had the wrong person. And, and it, it, it's interesting. That I guess it's ages and stages and it's I, I couldn't keep doing what I was doing as much as I loved it. And, and at, at a stage, a few years out of leaving Defence, I, I actually had the opportunity to very peripherally engaged in a SAS activity that was going on in the area I was working at in Queensland and just as a, a bit of a liaison and, and that was the first time that I realised that I had evolved past the person who I used to be and, and I was someone new and, and it was a, the first time I realised that I didn't actually want to be back there. I guess I was always looking back with rose-coloured glasses, remembering the good bits but um, I guess the transition happened slowly. It, uh, it happened without me really noticing it because I was so busy, particularly in that Queensland job, which I did for two and a half years. And and interestingly, somewhere in amongst that, what I noticed was I just stopped having those physiological responses to the intrusive thoughts. When I'd first gotten out, I was having all the usual symptoms. I was highly anxious. I'd, I'd have these uh, intrusive thoughts. My heart would raise, my palms would sweat, all the usual stuff. I'd feel anxious in crowded spaces. I didn't like being in noisy environments, uh, having bad dreams and what have you. And what I found was somewhere along the lines of being very busy in my job up in Queensland was all of that went away and I was still having the thoughts but I wasn't having any of the physiological responses to it and then from there as I, as I went along what I started to have was this this strange complete metamorphosis not only was I not having a bad response to it but every time I was having thoughts of the blokes that died or some negative experience that I'd, I'd had in Afghanistan or elsewhere, I'd start to really see the world around me for, for what it is and just how good we've got it here. And, and rather than when I was thinking about the blokes who didn't make it home feeling guilt or starting to question if I could have done something different to, to save them, I started to have the thoughts, well, hang on, they didn't come home, I did, so I owe it to them to really do the best I can in life, get the most out of life because they didn't have that opportunity and started to really appreciate my family my kids for what they are appreciate the lifestyle that we have in Australia you know you go to the shops and there's there's this this whole array of fresh fruit and vegetables and and having seen the third world seen the war zone seen the markets there and seen what they live off we've we've got it so good and we just don't appreciate it because we don't have that context and so I've been afforded that opportunity to see how the other half lives and it's really allowed me to appreciate what we do have. So you spoke earlier about post-traumatic stress, but from what you've described there, that's sounding like post-traumatic growth. Look, absolutely. I think that's exactly what it is. And it's, it's, I'm fascinated by this concept of post-traumatic growth. And, and I think it's, it's one that uh, I fear that society sees the post-traumatic stress disorder. It's, it's in the the media it's it's in the limelight and it should be it needs attention it is of course we're losing far too many veterans not only of the defense force of police forces of emergency services of childhood sexual assault i mean post-traumatic stress disorder is very real and it, it should get that attention but i fear that what gets lost in that narrative is the other side of the coin uh, which is the the veterans that have 
gone overseas, have experienced trauma, have come home, have managed to process that trauma. And now the ability to process that, there is, there's a lot of factors that go into that. Some of them are the underlying personality type, resilience, training of the soldier before they experience stress. And then when you come out the other side, it's all the physical injury, the support network, financial factors. There's a, there's a whole bunch that goes into that. But those that, for the most part, uh, in my experience, those that have experienced stress come home, they, they manage to process it in one way or another with or without help. And over time, they, they either go back to a really productive soldiering career, a productive civilian career, and some of them are, are really hugely successful. I mean, there's a we spoke about it before, but the cohort that ends up in the Defence Force has been distilled from society, has been selected, and then you take that again and distill it and select for special operations. And, and these guys and girls have got an incredible set of skills that if you can apply them to an objective in the business or civilian world, the sky's the limit. And we see that. And it's incredible just anecdotally talking to, to mates of mine who've transitioned out and the others that are doing really well. They all struggle with the transition. That's normal, I think. And as I mentioned earlier, I think a big part of it is that change of identity, loss of your old identity, that transition period where you're building a new one that to more or less degree post-traumatic stress dealing with the the trauma processing whatever trauma you may have sustained over the years but this post-traumatic growth this recalibration of what you see as a bad day so before you've had those negative experiences you might go out park your car get a parking ticket and it ruins your day might even ruin your week all of a sudden you've been on the battlefield you've seen your mates die you've seen civilians killed kids blown up and what have you and then that all of a sudden is a bad day for you you come back to society and and you get a parking ticket it's not so bad in the end you know so it it gives you this different perspective and if you can take some of that drive and focus and find something meaningful in a civilian entity be it business or or what have you the sky's the limit and we see this and there's there's endless examples of of what the literature is now starting to term post-traumatic growth and and I think it's fantastic and I I think that's a really important part of this narrative that is missed uh, in amongst all the PTSD And, and like I said we don't want to take the emphasis off the PTSD but by the same token we don't want society to see every veteran who's been to Afghanistan as necessarily being suffering post-traumatic stress disorder. It's simply not the case. Dr Dan Pronk, an inspiring story. Thank you for sharing. Well, that's my pleasure, Sharon. Thank you for having me on the show. Cheers. This is Sharon Maskeldare for Life on the Line. That was the second and final part of Sharon Maskeldare's conversation with Dr Dan Pronk. Our warm thanks go to Dan for coming on the podcast. Look up Dan on Instagram at Dan Pronk. Check out TACMED Australia on Instagram at TACMED Australia. That's T-A-C-M-E-D Australia. And their website is tacmedaustralia.com.au. Look us up online too. We're on Twitter at L-O-T-L pod and on Facebook and Instagram at Life on the Line podcast. Our website is www.lifeonthelinepodcast.com where you can also sign up for our newsletter. If you enjoyed the interview, please consider going to Apple Podcasts and leaving us a five-star rating and even a review. It only takes half a minute and it really helps us reach more people. Life on the Line is brought to you by Thistle Productions, artwork by Big Cat Design, music by Dan Van Werkhoven. Thanks for listening, and lest we forget. <laughs>